wanted to make a dramatic entry. <laughs> I also didn't want to d disappoint Jan, so I brought a lot of extra books so that she'll think that I'm smart um, and that I've done my homework. So let's pray before we get started, and then we'll start digging into this stuff. Father, you are a God of grace and mercy, and we thank you, Father, for your grace and mercy. And we pray, Father, that you would be present here today, that you would open our ears, open our eyes, open my mouth. And I pray, Father, that you would give us all wisdom and discernment as we seek to dig and pick at your word. We thank you, Father, for Jesus Christ, for him being the word embodied, the word that became flesh. I pray, Father, that you'd help me to put some flesh onto these words today. Thank you, God, for your mercy, and give me wisdom. Amen. So, I was thinking about um, John Lewis, who was a civil rights leader who just recently passed away. And if you've ever heard John Lewis speak or Martin Luther King Jr. speak, they've got this beautiful timber in their voice when they get going. It's this powerful thing that it just sort of shakes the earth when you hear them speak. And John Lewis was talking about, as a boy, where he learned to preach. And he learned to preach by preaching to his chickens at his family's farm. And he talked about how those chickens would oftentimes be more attentive than even some of the, uh, the churches that he went to, some of the congregations. Um, I haven't had the opportunity to practice on chickens. So I'm practicing on you today. So I want you to bear with me. This is going to be fun, I think, I hope. Um, so I want to talk about the parables of Jesus. So one of the things I love about the word is that when you get into it, you think you've got it at the first read, but all you've got is the words. You've got to dig into it, spend some time with it, let the word sit with you, and then as you start thinking, waiting, even aging, the word takes on new and deeper meaning. So I can tell you that I read these parables for the, for the I don't know how many of time. It's like, yeah, I got this. This is pretty straightforward. But then when you read what other people have thought and what the church has thought and how life experience teaches you things, you get to see that there is a deeper meaning. And it's more powerful, more enriching. And hopefully I'll be able to share that with you today. All right, so let's start getting right into it. The parables that Jesus spoke were explosive. They were explosive and dangerous. They were compelling words and they were word pictures. You can always tell a good speaker when they're able to sort of take that complex idea and reduce it, and you have that, mo that moment in your mind that's that mental aha moment. Jesus was constantly doing that with the parables. The other thing I want you to think about is Jesus knew his Bible. Could you imagine having been the Saturday school teacher for Jesus? He's like, I got this, I got this, or is Jesus again going to answer? Jesus had such a deep, amazing understanding and, and grasp of the scripture, we can only have just some small sliver of that. It's amazing, and when he talks about things, he's always bringing forward the Old Testament. See, for him, the Old Testament wasn't a discontinued story. It was just a continuation of the story. 
It was a continuation of his story and our story. So when he taps into the Old Testament, he's tapping into something that's real and relevant, even for us. So let's look into the first parable, the mustard seed. So when we get into that, in 31 and 32 of Matthew, we're immediately struck with this idea of this is a tree motif, right? He talks about trees. So let's think about where else in Scripture do you see trees talked about? Well, Daniel and Ezekiel, they talk about trees, and the trees that they talk about are these tall cedars of Lebanon. There are these mighty things, They're a king, and they represent kingdoms of the world, Babylon in particular. So when you think of, in their context, the tree of state, it's this awesome, powerful, inspiring thing. And yet, those nations, they crumbled and fell. Jesus is talking about a mustard seed, a mustard tree. A mustard tree is really not a tree. It's a bush. It's a mustard bush. The biggest, the tallest a mustard bush gets to is about 9, maybe 12 feet. Not what I would call majestic and stately. It's an oversized shrub. Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God being like an oversized shrub. Not that tall, stately thought that you had. Maybe what he's telling the people of Israel is that you thought, you thought we were going to be like a tall cedar of Lebanon. But the kingdom of God is something different. The message that I have for you is a little bit different. So let's also think about the context here, right? He's just talked about scattering seeds in the, in the parable before. This is one single seed. This one single seed is cast by whoever cast it, the caster, right? It's one seed that germinates and becomes and grows into this bush, sort of the antithesis of a mighty stately thing. Maybe there's a message about the kingdom. Maybe he's saying the kingdom is not what you think the kingdom is. Maybe he's saying the kingdom is about humility. Maybe he's saying the kingdom is about that which is unseen or unperceived. Maybe he's saying the kingdom is about something that we don't expect. It's not about power. So when he talks about this, and we think of Israel, Israel was like a seed that was planted in Canaan. It was planted in the land that God gave them. And Israel had this complex, right? Israel was constantly, because of their disobedience, getting overrun. Now they're being overrun by the Romans. And they look to the Romans, and they look to the Egyptians before, and they look to the Babylonians. We want to be like them. God, help us to be like them. But God says to them, your kingdom, you as a people, I've, I've selected you. I've chosen you. And I've got a different plan for you. I've got a different path of salvation for the world through you. Other trees. There's the tree of knowledge, of good and evil. Remember that one? Bad things happen with that one. And then there's also the tree of life. This tree imagery would have been evident to the people of Israel as they heard this, this story about another tree. And we think about Jesus ultimately, I think he's talking in part about 
the tree of life? Because what does this mustard bush do? It provides life and solace and comfort for the things of the world, for the birds as they flow in and through and around it. It offers shade and comfort in a dry and desert land. I read one article where they talked about, the author talked about when Jesus was on the cross, the tree of life and the cross became one. So when, when God sent out Adam and Eve, he said, we can't let them eat from the tree of life because then they'll have eternity. We had our eternity, or it began for us when Christ was on that cross. And that cross of judgment, that tree of judgment, became for us the tree of life. Beautiful images. The other thing you think about, Paul or picks up on it in Acts where he talks about, there's that phrase that in Christ we live and move and have our being. Think about that image as we look at these trees and you see the animals, the birds flying in and through it. It's like this coexistence. Could you, can you think of that as a, as a beautiful picture of our coexistence with Christ who lives in and through us as well? We have access to him through the Holy Spirit who indwells. We have finally relationship with Jesus unfettered. It's a beautiful image. And he says, the kingdom of heaven is like this. Moving on into uh, Matthew 13, 33, where we talk about Lent. So before I kind of leave that, I just want to leave you with the idea. A mustard seed, it's small. So we're moving on to leaven. In 1133, I've lost my place. I'm getting there fast. These things, these parables are so deceptively simple. So as we read in verse 33, he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. So what's important is to listen to the words that are there and the words that are not. So let's break it apart, sort of open this up like a nut. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven. Hmm, if you're a good Jew, or even a good New Testament Christian might say, leaven, that's bad. They want to get rid of leaven, right? It's not always bad. Leaven is also important when you are making bread. The Jews didn't just eat unleavened bread. They sometimes ate leavened bread. And we need the yeast to, to rise the bread up. So I bet you've never thought about how much constitutes a measure. A measure is 15 liters of dough. 15 liters. So you've got a woman who's going to make 45 liters of dough, and she takes that leaven, and she doesn't just sort of sprinkle it on top. It doesn't say the, it was sprinkled on top. She hit it. She dove deep into this pile of dough, and she stuck that, that yeast deep inside. Why is she doing that? She's a smart baker. She knows that unless the, the yeast gets deep inside the mixture of the dough, you're not going to have it do its magic. It's not going to rise. It's not going to come up. It's going to be flat. It's going to be unappetizing. The kingdom of heaven is hidden. It's 
deep inside us and it works from the inside and it pushes out when the Holy Spirit has a hold of you, when he's working inside you, he is changing the interior of who you are and he's pushing out all that good stuff that comes from him. You're like a leavened piece of dough. Again, yeast, is it big? It's small. Really small. I know I've spilled lots of containers of it. It's hard to pick it up. So, the kingdom of heaven is small. The kingdom of heaven is hidden. So far, it doesn't sound like the powerful kingdom of, um, of majesty and, um, and, and imperial power, does it? Another thing, and I'll move on from this, this three measures, where else do we see or hear about these three measures? In the Old Testament, Sarah, when she is met at the Oaks of Mamre with three individuals who Abraham refers to as Lord, good Trinitarian theology, she takes out three measures of fine, uh, fine flour and prepares cakes for those three men as well. So, why is Sarah so important? Well, Sarah is so important because at this point in her life, she's barren, and she's just going about or about to receive a promise to have a child, a child who is Abraham's heir, who ultimately is our father, Jacob, the father of Israel. Another small seed gets planted inside of Sarah. That seed germinates, comes to fruition, and becomes the Israel. And we are the new Israel. Hidden treasures, that's our next set of, of parables. I think we've got to remember, when we look at these, that there's another way to look at the parables of Jesus. In one context, you can say that the stories are just what they are, on their face, cute stories. But I don't think that's what Jesus is meaning. I think he's looking at something deeper. And when he talks about Israel, he'll oftentimes talk about the land. He'll use parables that refer to land. And when he's talking about Gentiles, some think that he's referring to the sea or the ocean. That there's this dichotomy or this distinction in how Jesus is speaking about peoples. So one way, if, you, if you'll grant me, is if we accept the assumption that when Jesus is talking about land, he's talking about Israel, and when he's talking about things of the sea and the ocean, he's talking about Gentiles, this will help perhaps understand and dig these out a little bit. So when we look at the parable of the hidden treasures, there's, let's just break it down and read it. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. This doesn't sound fair. This doesn't sound just at all. This sounds like a guy who's just getting some unjust enrichment. And he's duping the owner of the property. And this is being, we're told this is what the kingdom of heaven is like? Like shady dealings? Well, let's look at it. So the man is obviously active, looking for something. He's looking for a piece of land. Do you remember anybody else who was looking for a piece of land for about 40 years? And then they found it and were given it? Right? 
They had to do some stuff. They still had to go out and battle array and clear it out as God commanded. He finds this treasure and then he covers it up. Why does he cover it up? Because if he doesn't cover it up and the actual owner finds out about it, who's going to gain the benefit? The actual owner will. So he's cunning. He wants this treasure. And what does he do? He hides it. And then, because this is such a valuable thing to him, everything, he sells it all. I must have this thing. I must have it. Have you ever wanted something that bad? For those of you who've seen Napoleon Dynamite, I can't help but think there's this great line where there's a, a woman who's just been shown all these wonderful things like a Tupperware party, and she's like, I want that. She wants the extra special thing. The people of Israel, they wanted this. Bad. Bad enough to sell it all. So I would say if we're going to compare the two, the, 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 the land buyer and the pearl buyer, the land buyer might be a little bit more savvy because once he sells everything and then gets this treasure, he not only gets the treasure, but he also gets the land. He's able to live off the blessing of the land. Isn't that what God intended for Israel? Was to have a home, have a new garden, and to be able to receive the benefit from that garden? He's speaking to Israel. So we're more like the pearl guy. The pearl, I guess what you'd call him, the, the pearl buyer, is looking for that, that, that special one. And he goes and he's looking. This is like his life's purpose, to find that special pearl. And once he finds that special pearl, he is willing to give it all up for that pearl. Now, we don't know if he was a successful merchant or not. We do know that he was willing to lay it all down for that particular pearl. And we have no sense from the story that he intended to resell it. He was going to keep it and treasure it. So there's both this active aspect of seeking, but there's also this active aspect of renunciation. He basically said, I'm not going to sell this thing. I'm going to treasure it because it's worthy of treasure. Have you ever received a blessing or a gift like that? That you'll, regardless, I'm never, this will never part from me? So, if we look at the pearl searcher's story, <clears throat> there's searching, there's finding, there's renouncing, and there's possessing. Even when he renounced, this is both for the land buyer and the pearl uh, pearl marketer, they both receive the delight of the thing. It's not emptiness. But in order to get that thing, that treasured thing, they had to let go. And it's not a little bit of letting go. This kingdom of heaven that Christ is talking about, it makes demands on us. And only those who are ultimately willing to pay that price can be a part of it.
we have lots of ways of blunting the force of these demands. We point to all the rich men of the Old Testament, Abraham, Jacob, David. We point out that everything God created is good and should be received with thanksgiving. All of this is true. But do we point these things out because we want to be faithful to Jesus? Or do we point these things out because we do not like Jesus upsetting our plans? We do not want a Jesus who interferes with our aspirations, our version of the American dream, but that means we do not really want Jesus. Because Jesus is the one who says we need to hazard all on one thing, on the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not for the lazy, it is not for the weak, it is not for those who just want to get by. The kingdom of God is for those who are all in. You ever played poker? You ever played seven card and it's like, time to ante up, put it all in. Are you willing to gamble like that? If not, there's a cautionary parable that's right on the heels of this one. So we move from that to the parable of the net. So I don't know about you, but when I read these, it kind of gives me a little bit of apprehension, a little bit uncomfortable. Which side of the line am I going to be on? Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I think we really need to read this one in, the, in, in context of the, the prior uh, parable where it's the parable of the weeds, and that's explained. In the parable of the weeds, remember it's the land, right? It's on land. It's a message to Israel, specifically. And then, we're not just forgetting us Gentiles either. There's also the sea. He casts a net in the sea. In fact, you know, Christ talks about making fishers of men, right? So this is also the last of seven parables. It's this number of wholeness and completeness. It's a number of creation. So, when we read this, there's... That, path, that, that verse where it talks about the righteous and unrighteous, the Greek describes those two words as the beautiful and the rotten. You don't want to sell rotten fish, right? If you do, it's really not going to be too, to your advantage, right? You want to sell beautiful fish. You want to sell fish that look good, that look wholesome, that look healthy. So in this divining or separating process when the nets cast and they're all brought in the fish basically are the result of the life choices of the fish a fish that was wise was healthy ate well a fish that's rotten went down a different path he was going off one of those side eddy channels hanging out with the bad kids So what ultimately happens with fish? So if you listen to the story, 
there's, we know what happens with, to, the, to the rotten fish, right? They get cast out. But what happens to the good fish? They're placed in vessels. Why do you put fish in vessels? Is it so you can catch and release? It's ultimately for their consumption. The fish would be sold. The fish are used up in service to their purpose. You eat fish. Jesus himself gave out fish and loaves to the masses when they came to hear him preach. In fact, he even baked some fish after his resurrection. Fish is eaten. It's consumed. The best fish gets the best price, but it's also eaten. So we're called to a life that is ultimately sacrificial and ultimately consumed. Again, it's renunciation. It's a giving up. It's a denial. It's ultimately a life filled with service. So I would tell you, I would leave you with this idea that parables are invitational and interactive. We write the endings with our choices and our lives. We can embody these parables in our own lives through obedience to our King Jesus as we do little things with great love. Every act of kindness or sacrificial love is a monumental stone laid in the building of the kingdom. I think I have time. I haven't gotten the, the look from... from uh, you haven't looked this way. I haven't. So, so I want to leave you with a beautiful picture. Uh, this is from C.S. Lewis's, and this is it. I'm sorry. I don't know if I'm going over. Um, so this is a beautiful picture from C.S. Lewis. It's in his book, The Great Divorce. And this is about a woman called Sarah Smith who has lived what I would describe as a kingdom life. And I want you to just catch the imagination and the beauty of how this woman is described and the mighty things that she did. So there's two characters here. There's George MacDonald, who is the guide to the narrative. He speaks with a Scottish brogue, which I'm not going to afflict you with today. And then there's also the, the narrator. So we start with um, this story. Uh, so we'll start right with um, MacDonald introducing her. It's someone you'll never have heard of. Her name on earth was Sarah Smith, and she lives at Golders Green. She seems to be, well, a person of particular importance. Aye, she is one of the great ones. You've heard that fame in this country and fame on earth are two quite different things. And who are these gigantic people? Look, they're like emeralds who are dancing and throwing flowers before her. Haven't you read your Milton? A thousand livery angels lackey her. And who are all these young men and women on each side? They are her sons and daughters. She must have had a very large family, sir. Every young man or boy that met her became her son. Even it was only the boy that brought the meat to her back door. Every girl that met her was her daughter. Isn't that a bit hard on their own parents? No, there are those that steal other people's children. But her motherhood was of a different kind. Those on whom it fell went back to their natural parents, loving them more. Few men looked on her without becoming, in a certain fashion, her lovers. But it was the kind of love that made them not less true, but truer to their own wives. And how, but hello, 
What are all these animals? A cat, two cats, dozens of cats, and all those dogs. Why, I can't count them. And the birds and the horses, they are her beasts. Did she keep sort of a zoo? I mean, this is a bit too much. Every beast and bird that came near her had its place in her love. In her, they became themselves. And now the abundance of life she has in Christ from the Father flows over into them. I looked at my teacher in amazement. Yes, he said, it is like when you throw a stone into a pool and the concentric waves spread out further and further. Who knows where it will end? Redeemed humanity is still young. It has hardly come into its full strength. But already there is joy enough in the little finger of a great saint. But already there is great joy enough in the little finger of a great saint, such as yonder lady, to waken all the dead things of the universe into life. I hope you live your parable well. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are a God who is good, and you give us your word so we might know you and be in fellowship and relationship with you. We thank you, Father, for Jesus Christ. We thank you for your church. We thank you for the fellowship of believers. Bless our time. Bless these words, and to you be the glory. Amen.